Welcome to the Cab Appropriate Podcast. I'm your host, Cliff Harvey. This song don't give a damn. Yeah. If the rhymes don't fit with the DJ, quit. Yeah. This song don't give a damn. Yeah. You can't sing or dance to it, can't romance to it. This song ain't arrogant. Uh. If you don't try and buy it, or if your radio denies it, don't care about what, who got, what's cool on TV, or what spots hot, I forgot. Yeah. I ain't mad at evolution. For revolution, get up. Enough is enough. Hey, somebody stand up. Come on, get up. Stand up. Get up. Stand up. Get up. Stand up. Get up. All right, Sarah, how are you doing? Good, thanks, Club. How are you today? I'm bloody good. Like I was saying off the air, it's been a been a busy year. Lots yeah. is going on and it's flying by. Um, I know you've been very busy as well, completing your PhD thesis. It's all, all done now, right? All done, yeah. Yeah, just um, yeah, had the oral defence a couple of weeks back. Well, it's actually three weeks ago now. That's just the year flying by now. But yeah, you know, so that went well. Um, I submitted in September last year and then obviously it took a little bit of time to get done but uh yeah so it was mid-february that the defense happened and passed that so yeah all, all go so yeah graduating very soon well actually now it's, it's going to be a winter graduation because there's graduation ceremonies happening at the moment but didn't quite get it all done and you know the examination happened a bit late for that um graduation ceremony and it would have been a very fast turnaround but um yeah so yeah, you're in that so. limbo now do we, do we call you dr hancock or not this year? <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit like that, isn't it? You know, people say, can we call you doctor? And I just say, well, no, not quite yet. Yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, that, that'll come. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's funny, that process. I, I remember when I um, did my oral defence and, you know, you obviously passed, but there might be a couple of changes you need to make to the final thesis or whatever, but you've, you've passed. And so I don't know if they did this for you, but it's pretty common to come back in and say, congratulations, doctor. You know, in my case, Dr. Yeah. Harvey, congratulations, Dr. Hancock. But it's not quite accurate because you can't quite use the title yet. Yeah, or you just have to add a paragraph or add a diagram or something like that. You sort of go, well, yes, but I've got to add a paragraph. And everyone just goes, oh, don't worry about that. And you sort of think, yeah, but it's still going to get done. Yeah. So yeah. people listening in are probably wondering, well, what the heck was all this research? And I'll, I'll preface this by, um, I always do a bit of a Genesis story, I guess, about how we met because basically this podcast is about me talking to just interesting people that I meet through, you know, this journey and health and research and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I think through that we can, you know, I can talk to some people who perhaps aren't as well known as some other researchers, but are doing really interesting stuff. And I certainly think what you're doing is interesting. Um, so I met you initially through Simon Thornley and uh, Karen Zinn, who were two of my supervisors for my PhD. Uh, they were your supervisors too? Yeah. 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 yeah and along so, with Grant Schofield. Good old yeah. Grant, he gets his hand on uh, most of these research projects. He's the, the big thinker type guy. Um, so yeah, you were doing some very interesting research in, in predominantly uh, dental health, but that sort of translates through to the general area of metabolic health and, and I guess nutrition and public health in general. Um, I want to focus a little bit on that, that sort of dental piece to start because that's not the route that a lot of people get into metabolic health through. So how did you become involved in, in that area? What was your sort of journey to discovering more about that? Well, it's sort of 
passed over, well, obviously decades, because way back when, and this just, I'm going to sound like a really poor historian, but diabetes has always sort of been in my life a bit because my sister was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 10 years old and she was 8, and so obviously had a ringside seat for um, all of that and what that involves, you know, um, with children, teenagers, you know, living with type 1 diabetes. So it was always sort of there as a thing that I knew about probably more than most people of my age. And just that awareness and vigilance around what was needed to keep her healthy. And then the years go by and I did a phys ed degree and then did a master's degree in health research analysis um, in the early 2000s when we were living in the UK. And then um, had two daughters and one of them required it by the age of four a gluten-free diet. And so, you know, that's another sort of... Um, you know, we are looking at the carbohydrate intake, but also the sheer amount of sugar that was in a lot of the stuff that we were recommended to get for her as substitutes for bread and pasta. And, and it wasn't particularly tasty. And then I, um, and I'd also went back in the 90s when I was doing my original degree, there was um, people like Marianne Howe and David Rowlands who were getting into the higher fat diets um, for exercise. And so I sort of knew that that was a thing and out there and then friends were going on the Atkins diet and getting some really good results. So there's sort of, it was sort of germinating away there while I was doing other things. And then um, I sort of became aware of the growing low carb, healthy fat movement in New Zealand through um, Karen's and Grant's work in that area. And then sort of got to a point where, you know, the kids were getting a bit older and I sort of thought, oh, some postgrad research would be good to get into. And, you know, what sort of angle could we look at? But obviously having kids myself and I was formerly a kid and, you know, sort of went into looking at, well, what makes kids sick and what puts them to hospital and what sort of chronic diseases do kids have? And some of the reading I did around tooth decay was absolutely shocking. And you're probably aware that, you know, um, each day we get up and go to work and pay tax. Well, $132,000 worth of taxpayer money goes into ripping out the teeth of preschoolers under general anaesthetic. Wow. That's, a, that's, that's each day. And we're going to get up and do it again tomorrow and on Thursday and, and on Friday. And so it's a colossal amount of money that's being oh, spent. Per day. Per day. Per working day. Yeah. I took out the weekends. And that's huh. what we're spending per day on an operation to, it's essentially maiming children's mouths. It's not restorative or anything like that. So um, clearly that's a disease that's a chronic disease that's definitely diet um, is implicated in this. And so it just became a matter of just looking at all those connections between that and general health. And so started off looking at, okay, tooth decay and, obesity in children for instance which is another you know public health problem with that's burgeoning um pun intended and um and then sort of look discovered that actually you know the kids with poor dental health as preschoolers are often quite malnourished and underweight but then that changes a bit as they go you know emerge from childhood into early adolescence and that they actually are more likely to be overweight at sort of the ages of 10 onwards because there's been a habit picked up from very early in the piece that, you know, the mouth is sore, um, they can't chew properly. And so they never actually eat a full meal of, say, vegetables or meat or something like that because the mouth's sore and they don't have the language skills to convey that that's actually painful. So what happens is they get into a habit of continual grazing on things that break down easily in the mouth, which your starch and sugar-based um, ultra-processed foods, whether it's your crackers or your chips or 
um, various bread type products um, actually has that effect. And so, so there's those sorts of relationships as well too. Yeah, as well as, you know, the relationship of dental caries, um, you know, sort of like a dual process model where systemic inflammation is tied up in this as well. So there's a lot to unpack there and we'll, we'll, we'll get into <laughs> yeah. a, a lot of these nuances because that, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. There are so many interrelationships here that I think we need to explore. So mm. g- given that there's a lot of complexity there and there's lots of rabbit holes you, go, you, you could go down, what was your overarching sort of research question or hypothesis that, that tied all of this together? It was essentially to foster that recognition that um, poor oral health in children and essentially through the life course really and poor general health are integrally linked through the high and frequent consumption of refined carbohydrate foods right and that okay what so then bearing that in mind knowing that interventions to improve dental health in children especially if they're family-based or community-based interventions in particular might then improve the general health if we're looking at a dietary intervention of whole families and therefore, um, you know, reduce risk of chronic disease later on. Yeah. Yeah. So given that there is that, you know, well-known now, I guess, relationship between, I mean, I guess particularly in the early days, the relationship was known between dental health and cardiovascular health. Yes. And now we sort of, you know, know that there are associations between dental health and a range of other illnesses, particularly just general metabolic health. Can you speak a little bit to those relationships? Because I know there's a lot of discussion and debate about whether these relationships are reverse causation or whether the, you know, dental health in, it, in, in itself is causal or whether the relationship's bi-directional, whether they're basically just outcomes of the psychosocial milieu. So what's your appraisal of that and how do you unpack all of those relationships? Well, you look at sort of when, you know, we're first getting um, diagnosed with poor dental health, often, you know, unlike a lot of these um, non-communicable diseases, it's diagnosed in children, so often quite early in the lifespan. But, um, and then, you know, we're sort of, as we progress through the life course, we're hearing more about adolescents being diagnosed with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and um, then type 2 diabetes. But we also know that periodontal disease, in particular, which is that um, breakdown of the periodontum in which you, um, you know, which is a major cause of tooth loss um, in older people is actually one of those um, adverse effects or adverse outcomes associated with type 2 diabetes in the same way that poor eyesight and kidney failure and poor wound healing and um, cardiovascular disease are, you know, major risk factors where type 2 diabetes is the major risk factor for that. But periodontal disease is in there as well, too. And Mary Cullinan and Jared Seymour, who used to be at the University of Otago Dental School, have written a bit about this as well, too. Yeah. Um, The other part of all that is that I sort of started looking into this a little bit more, mainly because I was sort of a little bit, you know, had some questions about the differential effects of particular acids in the mouth. You know, because, you know, there's all sorts of sources of acid. You know, citrus fruit can be, uh, you know... is quite acidic in the mouth as is, you know, and people who get reflux. So there's quite a frequent, um, you know, um, occurrence of acid in the mouth, but also you look at people with bulimia or those other sort of issues where there's um, reflux or vomiting or that sort of thing, but they don't get that 
rampant decay that you see. So we sort of started, I started looking at, you know, the effects of these different acids and then sort of thinking, well, what is it about the sugar and high sugar foods? And then that was sort of a, it, was, it felt like a bit of a rabbit hole going down that about 15 months ago or so now, but then sort of looked at the centrifugal fluid flow by, through which your teeth get nourished. Um, and that's controlled by the hypothalamus parotid axis in the same way that secretion of insulin from the pancreas is, con- is mediated through hormone pathways like that. And so what happens is with the high sugar diet, that has an effect on the parotid gland and interferes with that secretion of um, centrifugal fluid by which your tooth is nourished. Interesting. And so is that, in your opinion, would is that likely to be, I'm probably asking you things that haven't been answered yet, but is that likely to be a, a relationship there or is that just something driven by the hypothalamus through two different pathways? Or do you think there's an actual interrelationship there between, say, insulin and um, the, those dental And the secretion outcomes? of carotid hormone that, and that does have a role in the flow of that fluid that nourishes the tooth through the pulp because yeah. the, you know, and, and that's sort of, you know, the fluid goes through the pulp and then goes through the dentin, which is when you look at the construction of the dentin, that's a set of stacked rods. Hmm. And it's the second hardest substance in the human body with the enamel being the hardest. I mean, it's harder than bone and it kind of needs to be because it's, you know, pretty much assaulted by all sorts of things happening all the time in your mouth, you know, the things we chew. But I think, yeah, it's, um, and it's driven by the increase in the mitochondria of the hypothalamus um, with a high sugar diet that increases the um, you know, metabolism of that mitochondria, it produces an inflammatory response, which drives that increase in insulin secretion. And also it drives the downregulation of the parotid hormone secretion. Right. It's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah. Especially when most people consider dental caries as a process that's just acid in the mouth and, um, you know, the growth of overgrowth of bacteria. And that does have a role, but it's also um, there's this um, systemic response as well too that's um, happening, which is why we see such damage with a high sugar diet. Right. So if, if you were to try and pass out here some of the, the differential effects, how would you say that, you know, is acid more of an impactor of dental health or would you say sugar or starch? If you had to pick out of those three, how would you kind of rank them? I know that's probably putting you on the spot, but how would you rank those three in terms of their effects on dental health? I think we're pretty, there's very clear evidence through a number of pathways, whether it's anthropological evidence and the microbiological evidence that the production of acid with sugar is um, a fairly important culprit in the erosion of enamel. Yeah. Yeah. So we know that, you know, acid in the mouth and especially the frequent hits of acid onto the teeth, um, because your saliva has a really important role in that it actually helps buffer and clear those um, acids from the mouth. And so it just actually keeps um, the actual bacteria in a nice balance on your teeth. Because we've got all these bacteria in our mouth um, that actually work on the tooth enamel to keep everything in a nice balance. And your saliva is fairly rich of ions like calcium and phosphate and a little bit of fluoride, which is naturally occurring in your saliva. Um, 
so of course the asset has an effect but i think the um combination of um sugar you know sugar is really um highly implicated in dental caries but the interesting thing with starch is that with your starch and sugar products like if you eat some bread um with jam on it or something like that that actually has the effect of holding the starch holding the sugars onto the teeth for longer and the actual clearance of those sugars from the mouth isn't as efficient so say if you eat a very sweet lolly or something like that like a chocolate caramel and they did some research on this in the 1990s there's um you know you chew, chew that lolly and the sugars actually disappear out of the mouth reasonably quickly um, off the surface of the tooth but when there's starch involved as well too that does actually hold the sugar in the mouth and on within the bacteria onto the tooth for a longer period of time so mm -hmm. you can imagine how this rolls out where people will have breakfast and then they'll go and eat um, morning tea with a muffin with some jam or whatever on it yeah and then eat lunch and so it's that very frequent between meal intake of food that's actually really important as far as how caries develops. And I guess the, the combination of sugar and starch in that volume is a very recent thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So when, when was that research that began to um, sort of look at that effect of starch on, on teeth? When did that start? It sort of was starting at around about the sixties and the seventies. Right, so it's been around yeah, for a while. So this is not new stuff by any stretch of the imagination, but there was also some work done as far as the increasing acidity of, um, you know, when you gelatinize starches, um, you know, the effect of the processing of these does have an effect on the acidity and therefore the karyogenicity. I know it is a word, <laughs> yeah. of these um, these products um, on also saliva, but also the tooth as well too. And so, yeah, it was just, you know, the um, it's not new information that these highly processed starches have this effect on, on your teeth and in your mouth. But where there's um, a lot of, there's not a lot published out there um, for various reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you can probably work them out. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to bounce yeah. back to that straight afterwards, but you did mention the, um, that the oral microbiome. Yeah. And what, what sort of role does, I mean, obviously that has a very important role in oral health, but do, do you know, or did your research touch at all on how the oral microbiome is changed by diet and what effects that might have, or is that sort of down the, down the stream a little bit? I think it's down the stream a little bit more, but what we do know is that a diverse biome is, um, healthier than a, um, you know, one in which certain bacteria are, allowed, are able to, you know, multiply and you get that overgrowth. Like there's the bacteria that's most commonly um, implicated in dental caries is the streptococcus mutans and lactobacilli and um, by, by um, yeah, the pronunciation is gone at the moment. But uh, there's just a few bacteria that if you, you know, if that multiplies more, in the mouth well that's going to lead to decay as well too right and yeah. is there are there any indications from the research as to what type of diet improves oh, it's oral essentially or? a high sugar or a high processed food diet yeah and that reduces you know, a diet in which there's a preponderance of highly processed foods that are ingested frequently now for instance i you know i've just we've not long published a systematic review back in november 
where we looked at um, the role of sugar and starch containing foods on dental caries in prospective studies. They were all, they're all cohort studies. There's no trials um, or no randomised controlled trials in this, but we found that that's a between-meal consumption of sugar and starch-containing foods that are implicated in dental caries, whereas the total amount of starch by however that was defined yeah. in, these, um, in the individual studies, um, there was no difference between really high amounts of starch or not. But then there's also the confounding effects that you might be having caries-protective foods at mealtimes yeah. as well too, like meat or full-fat dairy. What I also wondered within that is just the, the washout effect, you know, of, of time between meals. Yeah, that's really important. Like that's been quite well established since the 1950s that actually it's a very frequent intake of sweet foods that are yeah. implicated in dental caries, which is why all these dentists out there would actually say that, um, you know, just try and cut down the frequency of your eating, you know, the, um, you know, you don't need morning or afternoon tea, like give your teeth a break and so that your saliva um, does actually clear your teeth. And we do know that for people who have disorders that do interfere with, or, you know, where one of the manifestations of these, that the salivary flow into the mouth is, you know, um, less, that they do have more problems with dental caries or if they're on certain medications that um, interfere with salivary flow. So that's really important, and I'm glad you've touched on that because our spit is just really important. Everyone can just sit there and roll it around their mouths now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and that was a really interesting finding from your review that I, I read through the other day. Uh, and it's it's interesting that it's not it's not the same, of course, but it's it's related to so much of what we've seen over the last, I guess, since I got into practice 23 years ago that mm. you know when i got into practice the everybody was saying you've got to eat frequently you know and probably for the yeah. first two yeah. or three years of my practice i was saying you know the the more frequent the better um and it wasn't until i did research on behalf of some of my islamic clients who were really worried about losing muscle during ramadan yeah that i began to see hold on fasting is possibly pretty beneficial for a lot of people and if nothing else that didn't you know changed me into a fasting zealot overnight, although I had used fasting a lot for other purposes through the years. Mm. Um, but it certainly showed, number one, the value of fasting for some people. Number two, it really released me, at least, from that um, marriage to the clock, you know. Yeah. <laughs> from, from there, it really became a process of looking at the individual. And number one, my, my number one rule for a lot of what I put out there is eat meals, don't snack. Now, yeah. snacking works for some people, that's fine. But what I'm talking about is in general for, you know, public health and for most people most of the time, we should really be focused on eating good, robust meals rather than this idea of grazing. And so when I read that, that sort of added another check to that box that for, for oral health, having that washout between meals is pretty important. Well, it's super important, but especially when it's that frequency of eating that's actually implicated in dental caries. And you look at the, you know, how we consume those foods that are implicated in dental care, and it's that between meal consumption. Yeah. You know, of the, that stuff you have at morning tea, like a muesli bar or what well, you and I probably don't, <laughs> other people might. But and unfortunately, those are the foods that are recommended and guideline recommendations that you should eat. But well, not only that, for children and young people, they're advised to have bread and cereal-based foods up six times a day. Yeah, so that, that was the... The, the main thing That's I wanted to really focus down on, yeah, is 
I know you've written a little bit about this. There seems to be, and I'm sure you'll expand on it, a disconnect between the dietary guidelines and best outcomes for dental health. Now, we, we could say that there's also a disconnect between dietary guidelines and other aspects of health, but particularly with respect to dental health, uh, yeah. I, I imagine you'd say there's a pretty big disconnect there. It's a really big disconnect because essentially all the, it's not just the evidence around the highly processed carb-based foods, but also around the foods that have been associated with protection since the 1930s, Cliff. You know, like your vitamin D-rich foods... And you're probably aware right. of the studies by Edward and May Mellonby, where they actually found that they could actually reverse um, or you know put into remission the caries process in children when they stopped giving them oatmeal for breakfast and made them eat fish and eggs and um, meat, red meat. And so the white spot lesions that they were observing on kids' teeth actually disappeared. Huh. Which is really interesting. So it just shows that there's this link. And actually, it's there's a whole other story to be told around um, the oral hygiene industry and how you know oral hygiene strategies came to be a massive part of prevention for oral health. Um, whereas by the 1930s, most dentists accepted that actually just full fat dairy and vitamin D rich foods were protective in the mouth. Right. But, so that... our, but you know, um, 80, 90 years later, we've got dietary guidelines in New Zealand that recommend low fat dairy produce for children yeah. after the age of two, but also lean meat. <clears throat> well, low-fat dairy across the board as well. Oh, absolutely, right? for everybody. And, and that's yeah. been, I think that is the biggest disconnect from the evidence in the dietary guidelines. And I know that, you know, Grant mm. and I have talked about this for years now. Um, I possibly talked about it longer than Grant, but <laughs> that's just because I was involved in that space. But it always seemed to me to be the biggest disconnect because as far as I know, and if anyone's listening to this and they have some research, then please send it to me. But as far as I know, there is not one shred of evidence that low-fat dairy improves outcomes for anything, right? And Including so, oral health. Exactly. Yeah. And so again, it's another sort of check in that box. And it, 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 it requires a lot of hoop jumping to make a case mm. for avoiding full-fat dairy at the, you know, benefit of low-fat dairy oh absolutely yeah so and because it, it's not only there's not only the benefits you know because like a lot of my a lot of the research was around sort of child health and you're sort of thinking okay well, we're looking for those guidelines for children and young people and that's what we wrote about in an article that was published last year but so there's um it was kind of a multi-pronged thing about the dietary guidelines where we looked at the evidence that you know highly refined carbohydrates and your sugar and starch um, containing foods where they're harmful when con consumed frequently. Um, and But there's some benefits shown in full-fat dairy and vitamin D-rich foods, including your eggs and that sort of thing. But that sort of stuff, the, the um, dietary factors associated with both protection and um, against dental caries, but the ones associated with harm in dental caries there's a huge disconnect between that evidence and the dietary guideline recommendations. Yeah, I, I find the, the vitamin D area fascinating. Yeah. Because I, I think it gets, it becomes very polarized, you know, when we're looking at some outcomes for which there's pretty skinny sort of benefit. But across mm. the board, I think we, we can probably say that, you know, vitamin D is obviously very important for immunity and a whole bunch of other things. Um, 
but it's probably underserved in a lot of people. And mm. I'm circling around to a point here, I promise. I published a paper last year on a, a case um, because, you know, COVID sort of put paid to a lot of the, the research projects that I was going to be involved in last year. And so instead I focused on a few cases and I published one last year of a uh, child patient, pediatric patient of mine with alopecia areata. So it's autoimmune condition of spot baldness, hair loss. Um, it was basically just looking at a combined nutrition and supplement strategy, vitamin yeah. D being critical for that because, you know, there is a very strong link between that autoimmune condition and vitamin D status as there are for a lot of autoimmune conditions. But the interesting thing was that when, as is, as is the case for a lot of people, when that patient went to the doc and got a vitamin D test, it was well within the reference range. Yeah. But the reference range for things like vitamin D and zinc for kids should actually probably be higher. And when yeah. we consider that a lot of people, particularly people with certain autoimmune conditions, have polymorphisms uh, that mean they don't use vitamin D as effectively because the vitamin D receptors, you know, dysfunctional or whatever, then the, the functional range is probably even higher. And so we would want to be at the higher ranges. Now, most people really aren't at those high normal ranges, yeah. you know, at, at all. So I think there's, there's some underlying stuff in which probably a significant minority of people are underserved, even if they are supposedly adequate. Yeah. And I think that's where the whole vitamin K2 research is going to get really interesting as well too because you know given that's an activator of vitamin d3 right as far as your calcium metabolism goes but um yeah and so i've been reading some interesting stuff about the role of vitamin k and you know the calcification of soft tissues and you know some of the problems around that but it's really important for that setting down of bone and teeth and we also know that children who are born to mothers who have vitamin D deficiency have a higher risk of developing dental caries as children. And that's really interesting because of that whole tooth nourishment element of all this. But if yeah. they're vitamin D deficient, you know, and you know, we, we do get that through the sunlight, but also um, as far as the vitamin K2 activation of this, because you're probably aware that there was that trial that was published in, I think it was about 10 years ago, where they gave all these um, women who had osteoporosis um, vitamin D and calcium tablets. But what actually happened was that they, uh, it, it worsened their risk of cardiovascular disease because of the increased calcification of arteries. And so what we know about vitamin K2 is does act on osteocalcin to make sure that you get your calcium deposited where it needs to go, which is into your yeah. bones and your teeth. But also um, there's the MGLA proteins, which are also um, tied up with preventing calcification of soft tissues and fluid, which actually then just sort of dials into that whole thing about the dental plaque anyway, and the stuff that you go to Lumino the dentist to get scraped off your teeth. Yeah. Because that's quite fascinating, because even reading some of the Twitter accounts of, of people, you know, who follow a carnivore diet or these very, very strict keto diets, they'll talk about how their teeth are feeling fabulous and that they go to the hygienist and the hygienist says, we haven't been here for a long time. But, and then they open up their mouth and they find out that there's actually really nothing to do. And so there's just not that plaque buildup. And I've sort of been thinking, well, is, there more, is the K2 thing more of a key in that? Because, you know, your plaque is actually called dental calculus. 
So that that's an interesting hypothesis. How how do you think that is potentially working? Do you? I mean, obviously the the lack of starch in those diets is going to be a factor. The lack of sugar, yeah. the lack of starch, those types of things. But in terms of the vitamin K aspect, given that let's take a carnival person, they're not eating any vegetables, so there's no K one really. Yeah. Um, the K two is either going to be pro provided by maybe a little bit of microbiome activity, um, but it's not really going to be present in a lot of other foods because K2 would typically be in some cheeses, um, natto. Yeah. You know, so sauerkraut. Sauerkraut is a source of vitamin K2 and your gout and your breed cheeses. That's one form of your um, vitamin K2. And the other form, um, which is your MK4, I think, MK4 is, is um, MK7 that's, your, is um, that's your grass-fed beef. And oh, right. okay. yeah, yeah. Which huh. are, and you can tell the grass-fed beef from the other stuff because you know, it's got this nice marbled effect through the, meat or the fat sort of marbled all the way through it as opposed to non-grass-fed beef where the fat is just really white and hard on the outside of your um, meat. So you think it's just the volume of of meat and organ tissue and whatnot that's providing it, Or the proportion of that in your diet may have, be an important factor as far as actually maintaining the that element of the oral biome i mean there's more i have to read about this but it's really interesting to explore given yeah. a lot of this these anecdotes and um a lot of the stuff that we're reading about people who are reporting improved oral health as far as a lack of um plaque buildup on the yeah. mouth and so we've sort of had this whole idea that you'd just go and buy mouthwashes and things like that to clear your mouth of bacteria but you could also be a stripping your mouth of various bacteria that can be quite healthy and that you do require in your mouth, but also that may just lead to a, but you know, we may have got that whole plaque element wrong as in why that forms. And is that due to a vitamin deficiency? So that, um, that's, that's fascinating to me because, you know, having been interested in the microbiome for so long, it's always yeah. fascinated me that, we're so obsessed with the gut microbiome, but very few of us pay attention to the oral microbiome, um, to the sort of, I guess, the whole, you know, oral nasal cavity microbiome. Yeah, I know. Uh, the skin microbiome, you know, all those things. And we, we still often have this idea that, well, we, we recognize the, uh, the, the gut microbiome, so we don't want to take mm. antibiotics and things if they're not necessary. Um, but then we'll lather up our skin with soap. <sighs> You know, yeah. we'll wash our hair excessively. We'll use mouthwash and try and strip all of those nasty bugs out. Yeah. Uh, not realizing that we're really just doing the same thing that people were doing decades ago to try and, you know, cleanse the bowel and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, even the growth of the oral hygiene industry around that is quite fascinating, really. And um, yeah, because especially, you know, given that diet was accepted as, you know, the main principal um, factor find dental caries and they sort of worked that out in the 1920s which is when all that vitamin research was um you know coming into its own as well too or starting to um be done but then by and then you got these oral hygiene companies and the american dental association for one had to decide whether this stuff was actually of therapeutic value or not as far as prevention of caries went or whether it just should actually be kept in the aisles with the lipstick and the mascara and everything else as a kind of a nice to have and it feels good, that sort of thing. And so they had this um, Council for Dental Therapeutics Committee 
And they looked at the evidence and found that it was just didn't stand up to any sort of scrutiny at all and stated as such. But then they got um, the American Dental Association was sued by um, an oral hygiene company um, because they kept um, because they couldn't advertise um, in the American Dental Journal anything pertaining to therapeutic benefit. You know they weren't allowed to. But a business manager there got annoyed, and so the the American the Council for Dental Therapeutics hands got essentially tied, and so basically um, oral hygiene became accepted as a preventive strategy because more and more dentists were sort of thinking, well, hey, this is easy. And then the sugar industry obviously got stuck right into this because they said, well, you can eat anything you like as long as you clean your teeth. Right. And can you see how that all works? And so then we get to decades later, you know, we've got dentists who are still being taught predominantly that, um, you know, you can prevent tooth decay and caries by um, having a diet that is low with a low frequency intake of sugars and then when the dietary guidelines came out how, how did that go for dentists you know if you're a mid-career dentist in the late 70s and you've got these dietary guidelines coming out saying reduce the fat and reduce the amount of meat you're eating and get stuck into eating carb-based foods at, you know um, frequently during the day that must have made things very difficult and I think that's where we probably saw those shifts into those hygiene promotion strategies for preventing tooth decay which are very prevalent in all our oral health promotion initiatives now. It's all about frequent visits to the dentist and um, brushing your teeth and flossing your teeth. Yeah. And um, that's regarded as really important. It's such a weird thing. I've thought about this in, in my more esoteric moments, I guess. Yeah. The idea that we associate health and, and wellness of the mouth with a particular flavour Mint, yeah right it's, it's weird. one of the most successful marketing yeah. strategies of all time and it seems to me so so strange that we picked a herb and yeah. that became the the thing for oral health i know i mean it could have been sage or it could have been <laughs> exactly yeah, that been been interesting, but i feel yeah. like a real hipster with a you know sage breath and you know oil in my beard and stuff like that that'd be very really sort of happy <laughs> um that that leads me to us though I've read some interesting things by people who would probably be on the fringe. I can't remember their names now, but researchers who sort of suggest that perhaps our, our oral hygiene practices are not either not necessary or counterproductive, all sorts of, you know, a whole spectrum there mm. of different opinions. So given that we, we could probably all agree that the best thing we can do is to be healthy, to have a healthy overall lifestyle, but to eat a diet that is conducive to oral, good oral health. So not, snacking not excessive amounts of sugars and starches yeah. you know not so, lots of unrefined foods those types of things in that context how important are the various oral hygiene things we do and which of those do you think are most important least important like what should people actually be doing if they're eating a good diet to help further improve their oral health um, if you you couldn't make a case for if for eating a good diet, that will be one of, that was probably the most important factor in maintaining good oral health. Um, I think, yeah, I think there's, and there's some really interesting studies. And the first one was done on a um, bunch of people that were doing a Swiss reality TV program where they got them to eat a Stone Age diet, for instance, 
and um, took away the toothbrushes and made them live in the hills of Switzerland, um, that sort of thing. And they found that actually their periodontal health improved, which uh, it was this finding that they were a little bit surprised by. So there's only about three trials there. I'll send them to you if you like, because they make for quite fun reading. Um, because, you know, it's just, you know, they've got a bunch of people. But so I think the evidence around um, toothbrushing, well, the quality evidence is decidedly mixed. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, and I mean, a lot of the trials that have actually looked at whether telling people to brush their teeth actually improves their health. Well, it's difficult to isolate whether it was the advice to do toothbrushing or other dietary advice or um, other things, whether that was implicated. But the trials, the conduct was you know really quite mixed so it's not strong evidence um there is some evidence for you know where there's decay already happening you know the topical gel applications of fluoride you know as far as those sorts of preventives go that can actually reduce things but but it'd be nice to sort of get to a point where we can just say just eat well and here are the principal components of a optimal oral health diet whether they be some fermented foods like your cheese um meat um, including fatty meat, you know, all sort of stuff that we, you and I would probably like to eat, but also just keeping that intake of refined carbohydrates right down low. But it's difficult because we don't ever eat just a single food, do we? Like I'm not mm. going to sit down tonight and eat just a plate of carrots. No. Yeah. <laughs> or, well, you might sit down and eat a plate of cheese. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could do that. Yeah, yeah. But you, you know, but at the dinner time, it's actually really hard to do those studies on single types of foods but we do know that there are you know be impractical to do so um you know over a long period of time um yeah. probably the closest we'd actually get is looking at the evidence of, from the western price studies but also you know putting people on a carnival diet i think would be really interesting and just like having a look at all their um dental health indicators whether that's inflammatory markers or bacterial counts in the mouth um you know, over a long period of time, but that's probably not going to be entirely feasible and it would cost a lot of money to do that, um, to just to maintain the results because, you know, it is a slow process, the caries process. But, um, yeah, so as far as the flossing, well, I mean, even the American Dental Association have removed flossing as a recommended strategy for preventing tooth decay because the evidence behind it isn't particularly good. Really? Um, so there is some evidence that floss, that brushing teeth might but the quality of the studies isn't terribly good but there is some evidence that the brushing will actually reduce the severity in the same way that fluoride can reduce the severity of dental caries but when you look at the latest um, ministry of health data for five-year-olds in new zealand there's really little difference little difference in caries free status amongst five-year-olds in fluoridated areas compared to non-fluoridated areas so we might have reached peak usefulness yeah as far as fluoride goes um, you know, as far as community water fluoridation. Yeah. I'm, that. I'm certainly not a conspiracy theorist around fluoride at all. Oh, um, no, no, my, my, my opinion. And this is just, just my opinion as a, you know, dumb old nutritionist, not anyone who's an expert in dental health, but my opinion has always been that fluoride is likely to be beneficial for oral health. Yeah. But I've also been very wary about the the systemic application of fluoride. I don't think it's necessary yeah. to be drinking a huge amount of it because if no. we have topical application through toothpaste, then that's really what we're looking for, right? It is actually the topical nature of the fluoride, as far as I know, that's important, not the ingestion of relatively large amounts. Is that 
correct in your opinion or have I sort of missed the yeah the I think there is the risk of fluorosis which is that discoloration of teeth with too too much toothpaste which is why you know there's specific advice around how much toothpaste you should put on a um on a child's toothbrush for instance it should actually only be the size of a pea yeah um that sort of thing but I think where fluoride is beneficial is you know if you've got a whole population eating a very high carbohydrate diet and very frequently it can there is evidence to suggest that can reduce the severity of the caries but um we're not caries free by any stretch of the imagination so it's not a curative but it was deemed a good intervention that you could actually you know um modify the caries status in a population without actually um getting people to change their behavior around food consumption so it was deemed to be a good thing but I think we've, we, we do need to attend more to diet and which means attending to the food environment around us that we're living in and just, you know, paying more attention to prevention. But that's yeah. a um, drum we've been beating for a wee while. Well, it's, I mean, it's particularly interesting in our current world situation. Uh, mm. You know, when, when the pandemic hit, I put out a little article, which, you know, I consider to be very, very evidence-based. Um, And it wasn't talking about COVID per se. So to say, you know, it was more in the context that we have this challenge. There is a virus out there that can be, you know, very dangerous, particularly for some people. And we know that there are certain things that are critical for immunity, just in terms of immune health. Yeah. We also know that, for example, um, some of those things that are very important for immunity, like vitamin A, particularly preformed vitamin A, which some people are not very good at converting the sort of vegetable base, you know, um, carotenoids into vitamin A. So preformed vitamin A, vitamin D, zinc, you know, 45% of guys in, in New Zealand don't get enough zinc from diet. 25% of people overall yeah. don't get enough zinc from diet. These things are critical for immunity and yet they're underserved in the population. And therefore, shouldn't that make a case that, hey, we can be healthier at baseline by eating better, by moving it that little bit more, by moving appropriately, by getting enough sun, all these various things. Of course, you put out an article like that in the early days of COVID and everyone says, oh, you're a quack. You're claiming that these things will cure COVID. But yeah. No, yeah. I didn't say that and you know, none of my colleagues no, you, you didn't say that, okay, this is going to cure it. So suddenly just get into it, but you can actually- Basically just see it. Have, have just have a crack at being healthier so that should this happen, you're actually a little bit more armed to deal with it. Exactly. And I guess that's- the same for oral health is that if we can be healthier at baseline, then you take care of the big things and the small things tend to take care of themselves to some degree. Now, when we talk, you've talked a little bit about vitamin D. Yeah. I'm really interested in that sort of um, that hockey stick effect that you talked about where initially our kids are undernourished. So they're underweight. Mm. Does micronutrition play into it? in a broader sense outside of just vitamin D? I think, yes, I think it would do because what's happening in these younger malnourished kids, you know, who are quite skinny actually and are possibly underweight when they develop caries at age, you know, um, 18 months to two to three years old. Um, I think what's happening is their diet is predominantly comprised of these ultra-processed foods, which are, fairly deficient in a range of vitamins because what happens is you know say you sort of think of the average 
you know, two-year-old um, might not have the language skills to actually convey that their mouth is hurting when they're eat, trying to eat dinner, right? And so they're actually not eating dinner and then they're sort of consigned as being a fussy eater, but then there's parents who sort of think, oh gosh, we'll better get food into them somehow. So we'll give them some snacks and these are healthy because of, you know, what they've been told in the, um, you know, the everything in their baby books or whatever you get recommends these foods for children and, you know, eat regularly and frequently yeah. and go grazing, you know, lots of kids graze, you know, that sort of seems to be the crux of a lot of the advice for younger kids. But also when you're eating a diet in highly processed food or a poor quality diet is going to have some harms in all sorts of ways. And that, you know, there's the replacement of foods that are, you know, nutrient rich with foods that are not, there's also inflammation going on there. There's a high sugar intake, which actually drives more consumption of those foods as well too. Yeah. And so what happens is these kids are not actually turning up to dinner time actually hungry because they might've had afternoon tea at 4.30. And so there's a whole bunch of factors that are driving um, a nutrient deficiency, which is why some of these kids who are presenting with caries very early in the life course are quite underweight mm. for a start. And, you know, are likely to be malnourished. But then, you know, there's a habit that's formed from very early in the piece and an eating lifestyle that's formed quite early in the piece where they go through their childhoods snacking. Yeah. And all official advice seems to confirm that that's what you should be doing. So what, as well too. what if any role does protein intake have on this? I mean, I would, I would suspect that at the very least, protein being the most satiating nutrient, and it reduces mm. cravings for everything, right? Sugar and stuff oh, yeah. included. Yeah. Would it predominantly be that autoregulation effect of protein that would have a benefit, or do you know of any other benefits? Like we now know of, for example, the benefits of protein for, for bone health, whereas people used to say it's you know it's bad for bones because it'll leach calcium and all that kind of stuff, which is rubbish. Yeah. We now know that a, a, an optimized protein intake is really beneficial for healthy bones. Is there a similar sort of finding that we know of for, for teeth? Yeah, I think, um, I think there are, you know, the associations, because I can't sort of say causation because there was no trials examining this, but the associations right. between a higher protein intake via meat and eggs and fish is associated with decreased risks of or decreased carries burdens. Yeah, which is quite good. So, I mean, yeah, a protein intake is going to, A, it's going to have some benefits for oral health, but it's going to also have some benefits as far as bone health, muscle health, just general activity, um, increased satiety of children, yeah, where they might not need to. And it's actually really, and this is just probably an interesting sort of out there observation, is that I've got two teenage daughters and when the level four lockdown happened, you know, they were having reasonably protein-rich fatty meals in the evening because that's just how we eat. But they'd get up in the morning and not be hungry. And yeah. so we'd do things like family brunch in the middle of the morning, sort of around their Zooms and around me writing the thesis up on the kitchen table. And um, my husband was working from home as well too. And But they didn't feel the need to eat frequently during the day, whereas they go to school and, you know, they've had to have breakfast by a certain time, you know, if they've gone to the gym or something or done exercise before school. And then there's like a break for morning tea or whatever they do at secondary school these days. And then there's a lunch break and then there's that sort of thing. And so you realise how much the whole school day is kind of set up around a little bit of work and then a break that people invariably go and eat at. 
But when they were sort of at home doing their own thing, with a bit of work in the morning, but it was quite efficient. They got through all their school stuff by about 1, 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But that wasn't punctuated by the need to eat a lot if they'd had a you know, reasonably high protein intake. And I've always tried to you know, keep the meat coming because they're growing teenage girls and they need it, and especially in the wake of some of the advertising that they're exposed to as well too by vegan influencers and the like. Yeah. And so, yeah, but that was just an interesting observation that came out of that. And so, I mean, they're now 17 and 15, and, but it was interesting that, you know, they're reasonably busy, active kids, but they didn't need to eat a lot if they had a protein-rich meal in the evenings. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, there's obviously a lot of impactors, I think, on, you know, satiety, but if we had to pick one nutrient, it would obviously be protein. Yeah, uh, I did a little research article. It was probably two years ago now on because um, I, I get asked the question, you know, does, does protein reduce sugar cravings? And we'd say just offhand, yeah, it, it does. Yeah. But I wanted to look into that a little bit further and, and really evaluate whether it actually does reduce sugar cravings. Mm. And it does. But it's not yeah. because it independently reduces sugar cravings. It's because it's so satiating. It reduces cravings for everything. Anything. Yeah. So yeah. people are less likely to eat between meals and and all that kind of stuff. Now mm. we also sort of look at, you know, one of the reasons I go back to talking about like a healthy lifestyle overall a lot is there are so many bi-directional relationships here. You know, we need to consider those too. For example, one of the big findings from sleep research is if you don't sleep long enough or well enough, you eat more. Yeah. But what you yeah. tend to not do is eat more at your meals. Interesting. Inter interestingly, that's probably because meals are so habituated we eat yeah. generally the same thing, but what we tend to do if we don't eat uh, sleep well enough is we tend to snack more and choose poorer quality snacks. Yeah, so and you sort of think, well, in the snacking, like say, you know, you might eat less at dinner and then you're having a snack at nine o'clock in the evening. Well, that's going to upset the whole sleeping, you know, your ability to get to sleep and sleep well as well too because you're just up Absolutely. so much later. And yep. so you sort of think there's a, you know, so there's a whole pattern of just unhealthy eating which does impact on your sleep which then if you wake up after a bad night's sleep that's going to upset the eating yeah. and your ability to, or your desire to go exercising and it upsets the right across the board poor poor sleep or poor diet both independently upset the microbiome and yes. obviously the microbiome then affects sleep and it also affects whether we you know crave food yeah. more and things like that. So basically, the, again, there's all these interesting bi-directional relationships. I remember just now, I think I remember reading a paper when I was doing a bit of, bit of a research review on uh, gut health uh, about a yeah. year or so ago. I think I remember seeing a paper on the oral microbiome and stress and sleep as well. And there was a big, again, that same sort of bi-directional relationship yeah. was shown there. And it's probably also to do with inflammation and all sorts of things. So there's all of this milieu of things i know because what are people doing if they're eating you know a packet of chips at nine o'clock at night they're probably watching tv and you know there's all sorts of ways in which your sleep is going to get affected or just scrolling through the news of the day on the device or whatever you can sort of see how that works exactly. um you know there's a whole lot of behaviors that um are interrelated that lead to poor diet, poor sleep outcomes, and then it's just a whole horrible cascade of knock-on effects, isn't it? 
Yeah. So I just found the stuff around kids and eating quite interesting because, you know, you're told pretty much every, everywhere you turn that kids need to eat frequently and often just to keep their energy up to do whatever they, you know, kids do during the day. And that might not necessarily be true if you just leave them to it. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I, yeah. Had, I had read some research and we're going back about 20 years ago now, so I wouldn't yeah. remember what it was. But I remember looking into this when I first started you know, it was when I'd been in practice a couple of years and I started working a little bit with families. And so I was interested in what the best way to approach kids' nutrition was because I, I said I'd never work with kids, but I'd work with families because I considered it important to work with their food environment, not yeah. in, in sort of yeah. directing them to eat certain things. Because I, I felt even, you know, this is going back a couple of decades ago, I even felt back then that that was probably going to drive negative behaviors mm. or negative food relationships. Yeah. So anyway... I read a lot of interesting stuff that seemed to suggest that if you have good food available and let kids go for it, they'll, they'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> because when we eat unrefined foods, we tend to be better satiated. We auto-regulate. We tend to eat. And here's another thing. I'm a big fan of eating until you're full, like actually full. Yeah. Because yeah. we're told so often, eat until you're moderately full. And I, I, I've asked this at probably 100 presentations that I've given, hundreds sort of speeches, workshops, whatever. I've asked the crowd, do you know what it feels like to be moderately full? Put your hand up if you do. And everyone's like, I don't know. So, okay, do you know what what's it feels moderate like? And what's moderation? Exactly. Yeah. So I say, well, do you know what it feels like to be actually full? Like you're, you're done, you've eaten enough. And everyone's like, yeah, of course. So yeah. It's like, well, what's wrong with eating a good, natural, unrefined food meal until you're really full? Because you, you won't want to eat until you're actually needing food again. Yeah, because you're going to stop. Everyone. Well, I'm, I'm moderately full, so or, I'm kind of satisfied. We just I don't behave like that, do we? <laughs> no. And that's not how we would certainly respond to getting food, you know, in, in a natural environment. Now, I do understand that we live in a different type of food environment now where we've got largesse, mm. not scarcity. But we can mimic a lot of those behaviours by you know, having some structure in which we have available most of the time, not mm. treats, but most of the time we have access just to those natural unrefined foods. And we make sure we're doing that activity that we require and we're not just, you know, grazing through the day. Yeah. Those things are fairly easy to people for people to do and they don't require as much control as, you know, dictating exactly what you're supposed to be eating and when, because that's, that's very difficult for most people to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because, I mean, say, you know, in a lot of households, and I mean, everyone's trying to do the right thing, sort of go, you know, and people know, and that's what sort of came out in the card sort exercises in this thesis is that, you know, the level of knowledge was actually quite high, that sugar's really bad and vegetables are good. And, you know, there was a mixture of views on meat and dairy and, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, but I think there's something about the food environment. Now we found that when we're all locked down and we had food in the house, that was relatively healthy. There was plenty of meat, cheese, fruit, vegetables, nuts, seeds, everything. Um, everyone ate really, really well. But one of the things that came through in the research that I did, we sort of think, okay, well, you know, we just did focus group interviews with the kids and some semi-structured interviews with the adult participants, which were included parents and health professionals. And even the health professionals who were parents, they're all very much in the whole, well, yeah, at home we, are, we have these foods, but then you go to school or you go to a fundraiser or you go to kids' sport, for instance. And, you know, there's the 
environment, those places is just um, a bit of a mess, really. And even the kids themselves, they talk about, you know, the food that's allowed to come into the school, whether it's, you know, the lunches once a week from Subway or whatever, and there's usually a biscuit in there as well, too. But they said, one kid said, well, you know, it can't all be that bad for you because it's not like it's cigarettes or alcohol. We wouldn't be selling those at school for a fundraiser. <laughs> and, um, and you sort of think, well, that's just actually really interesting, this perception of harm. And especially yeah. when they might go to a athletic type fundraiser and their parents are the ones on the stand selling um, soft drinks yeah as part of the fundraiser but that's not the sort of stuff that parent these same parents are letting in the door at home but they're selling it at school fundraisers and then you get the chocolate fundraisers it's gone the lamington fundraisers and the pies and so the food industry is actually crashing into schools in all sorts of ways for fundraisers and the schools are having to raise funds because they want to buy i don't know a shade sale for a playground or something like that and so you know the pressure's on for them to raise a few thousand dollars so those are just the ways in which actually all your intentions about healthy eating and not snacking and whatnot during the day can actually get undermined even just by going to school. Yeah. And just, or playing sport on the weekends, you know, where I could, I could take a, or most, a lot of parents could take a thermos full of, you know, nice soup or something like that to have on a cold day while you're watching rugby, you know, pour it out. Um, but, you know, there's somebody selling pies over there and one of the kids goes off and gets a pies and they all sit around and share pies and chips and whatever. And so, you know, you might have gone up there with all sorts of best intentions, but there is, you know, the marketing of ultra-processed food and what we allow into our schools and sports arenas that does have require addressing as well too. And so the environment around which, you know, we're operating in does require some attention paid to to that. And how, you know, the availability of these foods has an impact on health. So what's the happy medium there? Because I remember, you know, growing up, we, we didn't have, we didn't really have a lot. Um, we didn't have a lot of treat foods, I guess, around. We, no, we tended we. to, well, you know, we had, we obviously had starches because that was very, it was yeah. the, you know, early 80s. So we had a lot of those types of things that were standard back then. So we'd obviously eat, you know, sandwiches, we would have cereal. We're showing our age, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it was, you know, we, we didn't have soft drink. We didn't even have orange juice most of the time. It was pretty much water or milk and mm. then pretty pretty basic things. So meat, you know, bread, um, you know, some veggies, bit of fruit here and there, that kind of stuff. And I think because of that, I didn't really develop a, a massive sweet tooth, although I've probably got more of one now, mm. uh, which I think really served me well through you know, through the years. Um, we didn't really have a lot of restriction though as well if we, you know, would occasionally go out to McDonald's or if we were out at a rugby game and buy some chips or whatever. It seemed very infrequent and it didn't seem to be any kind of issue. So where do you sort of see that happy medium being for, for health overall? Yeah, and I think it was just a little bit different back then because um, what you've just recounted now is very much how... I grew up and there just wasn't the propensity of even cafes around the place. And the cafe that you went to had a sausage roll about that size. But, you know, you go right. into a cafe now and you see a sausage roll. So it's this huge, great meal in itself, isn't it? <laughs> Bella and I were just talking about that the other day. I was like, you know, when you had sausage rolls at a party when you're a kid and they're these little 
tiny thing, and so, now so you go you and buy a sausage roll at a cafe, and it's huge. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> you don't need four or five of those things at a party. It's the same and size so as a whole Allison Holst roll that you used to buy for the freezer back in the day. <laughs> yeah, that you might have with a salad or something like that. But you look at even the fact that our dinner plate sizes are huge now. Yeah. You know, you go into an antique store and you sort of go looking for a dinner plate and it's this rather small dish, isn't it? But you go into Briscoe's these days and it's this absolutely massive white platter that you mm. actually then have to be a bit careful about the size of dishwasher you buy um, because these plates just might not fit it. That's a good point. And it's, that is interesting to think back on because, you know, being a fairly big advocate for not snacking and, you know, eating mm you know, relatively large meals that are based on unrefined foods, there is still that, that interesting aspect behaviorally of, you know, plate size is a pretty good yeah. mitigator of overall energy intake. And I, I do, now that you've brought it up, I do think back to, you know, those, those days many decades ago now where we would go and visit relatives in the country and whatnot and it, that the plates were pretty small and the meals were actually relatively small. But they probably had fat-rich meat on it. Like, I was always told to eat the meat on, you know, here's your lamb chop and make sure you eat the fat. Absolutely. And we started shifting that. I remember in the 80s, we started shifting what we were doing at home based on all the messaging we were getting. Yeah. But, you know, and, of course, in the 80s, which was around about when my sister was diagnosed with diabetes, that's when the whole carb awareness really hit our household um, yeah. quite substantially, more than what it would have done for my friends, for instance. Yeah, that there was always an awareness of carbohydrate-based foods, but also actually the role of diet and actually maintaining um, some, you know, my sister's health on a day-to-day basis. And you know that what she ate did have an effect on, yeah. on that. And so, you know, but there was all the messaging, which, you know, we're just sort of, um, you know, look at in horror these days. Um, but, you know, that's that's what the advice was around that point in time where it was all, you know, whole meal, whole grain bread and, um, you know, eat that rather than white bread, but also, you know, low fat this and low fat that and, yeah, and adjust your insulin dose accordingly. Yeah, yeah. which was just really interesting. But, it's a, you know, we're talking about our lives in the early 80s and the late 70s, um, which, again, is, you know, illustrating how old we are um, <laughs> compared to a lot of the, a lot of your listeners. But... Definitely, you know, we ate probably more nutrient-rich food back then, and there wasn't the sheer number of ultra-processed foods because, I mean, there's so much in the supermarket. We know what's available in supermarkets. We've had about 100,000 new foods invented since 1990. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it it is. It's certainly different. Things taste different. So, of course, that's into the food supply, and it does just displace that, you know, the stuff that we really should be eating because, you know, the stuff is easily packaged, you know, it's packaged to drive further consumption. You can buy multiple packs of chips and we're now into, like, I mean, I would have never have been served nacho chips and mints for dinner as a kid. No. Yeah. Because I think my parents would have gone, they're chips. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and that's yeah. the thing. That for, yeah, I mean, we would have occasionally had that, but it would have been a novelty because... Hugely I mean, novel. You Mexican might have food wasn't a thing back yeah. then, really, for us here in New Zealand. And so yeah. that would have been a very rare thing where it's, well, we're having nachos. This is, it's like a treat, right? Yeah. It be a, a normal yeah. everyday meal. Um, so, yeah, the happy medium is, you know, maybe we just need to... 
you know, in our ideal world, we just need to be taking care of what we eat and making sure it's nutrient rich. You don't have to have as much of it. I've done some work with people in, um, you know, some people in Taupo who are just sort of trying to, you know, improve their health and um, via diet. And they've been struck by, A, not feeling hungry anymore when they've tried low carbohydrate or, you know, some people are very keen on trying keto diets. And the fact that they actually finish up, if you put all the food they ate in a day on a table, they actually finish up eating less than all this beige-coloured stuff that they were yeah. eating <clears throat> beforehand. And then, they've, then they start talking about how they're actually saving money because they're not buying snacks. And I think Karen Zinn wrote an article or I think she she and George Henderson published a paper where actually they found that actually eating eating a low carbohydrate diet can work out only I don't know the price of a coffee more expensive over a week or something like that I forget the actual numbers but yeah and then there's another study that came out which where they said actually what drives increased family expenditure on food is buying snack foods and buying fizzy drinks. Definitely. I, I, um, I had that discussion with Grant and Karen years ago now because yeah. one of the issues that was often brought up was this idea that, well, sure, but low carb, you know, or paleo or whatever people want to call various things that they're doing. I know low carb's not paleo per se, but we were talking about that whole sort of movement of, of food that was coming in is more expensive. So it's more for the, the white worried well. Mm, and yeah. I, I disagreed with that contention initially because I've worked with so many people, particularly men from, from South Auckland, Māori and Pacifica, who, who saved a lot of money switching to, to low carb. <clears throat> and a lot of it was because yeah. they weren't, they were eating some, you know, foods that were basically just ultra refined convenience foods that were very, um, very high margin foods, right? There's a big markup on mm. those types of foods. Uh, the more refining that's done, obviously, the greater the markup, although they might be cheap per item, they're not really value for nutrient yeah. Density. Yeah. But also they were trying to eat better. So although they would have a lot of foods that were ultra refined and maybe weren't in the compendium of what we'd usually consider a, you know, good healthy diet, they were also trying. So what that meant is they were choosing, you know, low fat dairy. They were choosing the the prime cuts of meat, you know. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. skinless. Which are expensive and which are much more expensive. So I'd often get the yeah. question, well, should I buy prime mints or the normal mints? It's like buy the normal mints. It's way cheaper. Yeah. At the time it was under nine bucks a kilo. Whereas the prime stuff is at least twice that. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And if I do, a, can I make a boil up? Yeah, of course. Do I have to, you know, scrape all the fat off the top? No, you don't need to worry about that. Well, and watch, the, you know, because the combination of all that is going to fill you up. And so you're not <clears> going to be hungry. So you then don't need to go and spend money on other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think as well, something that plays into that is is it's not necessarily about the cost of the diet, it's food insecurity. It is absolutely food insecurity. And actually working with people who have experienced severe food insecurity where they've grown up not knowing where that next meal is coming from, that has a reverberating effect years yeah. and years later where, well, you know, they might sort of say, you know, there might be people who've got arthritis or something like that or some inflammatory condition or that you sort of actually have to point out to them or actually eating all this fruit all in one go isn't going to be beneficial for you. You know, this may, yeah. you know, you might get an inflammatory response and they go, but it's in season and it's there and there's plenty of it. So we better have it now. 
before yeah. it, you know, while it's cheap. And so, you know, you can sort of see how that actually um, does, how that plays out too. And, you know, cash, cash flow plays into that big time. Oh, because, big time. You know, yeah. I often, people often say to me, well, why don't, you know, why don't poorer people just go and buy a big sack of lentils and a whole bunch of veggies and all this kind of stuff? It's like, well, they can't necessarily oh, afford to do that today because you need to buy quite a lot. And yeah. overall, it, it's going to actually cost quite a lot, even though per meal it's going to be very, very cheap. It's yeah. going to actually be like if, if you've got $7 in your wallet, you're not going to be able to buy the makings of cheap meals. You're going to end no. up going and buying a Big Mac. Yeah. Because it's calorie dense and it's, yeah. it's cheap, you know, for that meal, per, you know, to some degree, but then it's just a once off, but it all comes down to how much you've got at any one time. Yeah. And if you've got trouble getting access to a car to actually go bulk buying, well, it's simply not an option, is it? If you live rurally and there's one car and there's five adults in a house or something like that, and the car's away a lot of the time, you can't go to, you know, all those places. And actually, because and, I did some qualitative work as part of the PhD as well, too, which was super interesting, you know, just exploring some of the barriers that... I love qualitative research. I think it's so important. It is so important, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And that's right. where you get to sort of go, okay, well, you know, here's our quantitative work that shows, okay, this is what you know, but what's stopping you? And some of the barriers that people experience, but also what health professionals experience in prescribing dietary advice, especially when they know a bit about people's lives. And they say, okay, well, you know, especially if, say, a typical group they're working with, they do shift work. And so they're cleaning schools or hospitals on a Friday night. They're not the people who are able to get to a Sunday, a Saturday morning market and buying lovely, you know, locally grown fruit and vegetables, that's just not an option because they're sleeping, you know, from having worked all day the day before yeah. in a low-paid job. And so, you know, there might be a market down the road, but it's your yeah, access to all that and therefore to those foods is just more limited than it might be for, you know, other people. Either yeah. You're worried well who might have the time to do that while they're on their way to take Tarquin and Olivia to tennis or something. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to all the Tarquins and Olivia's out there, but I've never heard you know, that name just, before. But yeah, we're we're good. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, it's um, and I guess this is to to sort of start to round up the. I guess this is where so many of us who are in the health research space, it sort of appears that we're researching particular things, but mm. what in fact we're looking at is how how can we improve outcomes for those most at risk? I think that's where so yeah. many of us are, are active in this space and it may not always appear that way, um, but it, it speaks to a much larger topic of how can we help to sustain, preserve health for everybody because Absolutely. that's going to lead to the best yeah. societal and economic outcomes, I think, which you know, are integral too because that's bidirectional. Mm. We need to have people well. We need to have people able to support themselves. Yeah, I mean, the costs of being ill are, and the cost of illness in all its forms associated with non-communicable disease are absolutely astronomical. Well, yeah, I mean, dying young. You started to talk off by talking about $100,000 plus per day. $132,000 plus per day. I haven't even even built in statutory holidays into that. I maybe. That number will be bumped up, given that we tend not to perform that operation on Christmas Day, Labor Day, Waitangi Day as well. But 
know, that's, and we're going to get up and do it again tomorrow. And so we really have to look at the, a food supply that's um, pathological yeah. in these problems that we're facing. Okay, because, you know, you've looked um, through your own PhD research and looked at ketogenic diets and how low do we go? And I'm looking at dental health. And so we're all approaching the same problem from a different view. And then, but we're stepping back and going, okay, how can we help the most people and what should be the recommendations? And it's eating, eating real food, not eating, you know, reducing the intake of ultra processed foods, but eat great food with the people you love and you care about and have that being a part of a lifestyle where you're exercising, you're getting adequate sleep, you're engaging with people around you, you have good friends that you like talking to and hanging out with. And those are essentially some nice ingredients for a happy life, isn't it? Absolutely. Or a productive yeah. life, or a life that you feel like you're living optimally. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. And so, performing and thriving and, yeah, all of that. <clears throat> and, you know, the dental health thing is part of that. But the separation yeah. of that from general health has been a problem um, because it's just led to this differing approaches to tackle the same problem. I actually think as well, and this is a little bit tangential, but I gave a talk on this. I gave a number of talks on this a couple of years ago before COVID put, put paid to speaking. Yeah. But it was the idea that... Um, I can't remember the exact the, the exact title that I gave this talk, but it was about the idea that we have, we've basically focused on health at the exclusion of happiness. Yeah. Like we, we've basically focused so much on health and pathology. And so we, we treat pathology and we research pathology or what's good for sport. Cause that's where the money is, right? Sport or pathology. Yeah. We also uh, focus very much through media, social media, those types of things on this arbitrary idea of health. And that should be what we pursue. And that's the objective. But in reality, not one person on this planet is actually interested in health as an independent goal. Mm. Like if you could snap your fingers and be, be healthy tomorrow, that's great. But what would it actually mean? So when we start to investigate that with people, it's not about this arbitrary idea of health. It's, well, what is that going to mean? It's going to mean you're maybe a better father, mother, daughter, sister, brother, whatever, a better person. Mm -hmm. You're more efficient. You're more productive. You're able to have the time and energy to do the things you love. That starts to open the doors to human potential. And I think that's where we Absolutely. need to start really focusing because I, I certainly don't want to just preserve health so that people can be, automaton cogs in an industrial wheel i mean that's no that's no. boring and it's depressing yeah we want people to be more creative passionate and purposeful so that we can have solutions to the big problems of the world <laughs> well, so that they can actually get on and do the stuff they're meant to do as far as you know solving the problems that we want to solve and that's also goes into and this is one of my favorite tangents on you know we ask kids what they want to do when they finish school, but maybe we should be asking them, well, what problems would you like to see solved in the world? What pops your shutter? What ignites you? What's bothering you about the state of the planet at the moment? Yeah. Um, you know, and get on and do that. And I mean, and I was just thinking actually, because I went to the funeral of, um, you know, someone who died far too young. She was only 56. Um, oh, wow. I was a teacher at one of my, at my daughter's primary school. And, you know, we talked about, you know, what gets discussed at the funeral is what she did for other people and what she gave to other people and what she gave to all the kids that she taught. And, 
you know, the various gifts that she brought to the lives of others. But we're not talking about her health status that meant that she turned up at school every day on time and that sort of thing. But we want people to actually live a lifestyle where, you know, they are actually in a position to do what they want to do. Yeah. And yep, achieve absolutely. happiness and fulfillment and um, a good life by that, really. Yeah. Yeah, and allowing all people to have that opportunity, you know, I think that's that's critical, and that's why I personally think we've got a real opportunity, given the state we're in with this yeah. global pandemic, to to really reassess how we set structures up so that that can happen. You know, I think that's yeah, and I think that's really important, given the inequities that already existed that actually have the potential and actually are, um, you know, becoming worse because of this huge wealth grab, for instance, that we're seeing at the moment with, you know, the, you know, the sale of prop housing market and that sort of stuff. But, you know, say there's a, you know, at one particular high school in the Waikato area, they're struggling to actually keep their senior students in school because there's been so many job losses around the place with, um, you know, around, say, Waitoma, for instance, which is 85% yeah. reliant on foreign tourists or they're not here and the glowworms are something you go and see it and then you're kind of done you don't need to keep going back to look at more glowworms and so of course you know that's an economy that's really quite badly hit and they're trying to keep the kids in high school but they're working 20 to 30 hours a week stacking shelves at supermarkets yeah and so therefore keeping these kids at school where they might actually go and learn something and go and do something else whatever they then want to do is just that much more challenging in certain areas. And so I think, you know, given these inequities that are being pointed up more sharply these days, we're in a position to actually sort of go, okay, well, this is happening and this is why. And then sort of, um, you know, do some more consideration around how we um, mitigate all that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, it, you know, it would be nice to think that we're at a, point where we start considering prevention a little bit more and prevention of the non-communicable disease yeah well, especially I mean, when we've discovered that we can all change our behavior fairly quickly when we're told to when there's a threat of an infectious disease but yeah right yeah we all just knuckled down stayed at home and did as we were told didn't we yeah and the i mean the amount of money that is poured into that not that it shouldn't be but you know yeah. we, we know that you know that there are there's a lot of money being put into the response to this as there should be, but it's potentially telling us that these problems aren't going to go away. Perhaps there needs to be more investment at the ground level, like you say, and looking yeah. across the board at how things are interrelated, you know, we can't be so myopic anymore at looking at these particular spends as being isolated to one system of the body or one part of the country or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. You know, it was really interesting when they privatized transport in Auckland because immediately a whole bunch of bus routes were cut. Right. You know, that was seen yes. as being a really positive thing because it improved the efficiency and profit of this transport company. But what people don't realize, well, they realize now is that that reduced the efficiency overall of the city. Yeah. Because then you had people who can't afford cars, they can't get to work anymore. There's all these sorts of problems right and so you begin to see that we can't isolate so much we need to look systematically at yeah. the economy at society and at health and then mm. more than that you know 
what is health? Health is a stepping stone to more. Human yeah, it's not just the goal in and of itself. Is no, it? no. Actually, if, if you've got it, you can actually, it's the richest asset that you can have. Exactly. So yeah. I'm going to finish off with just a couple of quick fire questions. Ooh, okay. To, to finish things off and look, look at a few interesting tangents of Sarah Hancock. Um, given what you've gone through in your postgraduate process and your doctoral thesis, what, what have you learned that might have shifted what you did? What would you have done differently if you could go back and start it again? <laughs> or would you? I mean, or was it, you know, a, a pretty seamless process? It's been an interesting process doing it in total, actually. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's probably been a very different doctoral experience as opposed to sort of living near a campus and being able to go there and talk to a lot of people. But it has afforded certain other freedoms as you can just get on and do it. And I had really great supervisors who were um, really supportive of that, that sort of thing. And I feel hugely fortunate that I was able to do this research with children and at schools and with parents and health professionals in the total area um, who were really open to it. And it was actually just quite nice to be able to do that in a population that might not be studied as much because yeah. they're not in a city with a major tertiary education provider there yes. at that level. So I was super fortunate and I'll always be humbled by how people manage, how people trusted me with, you know, various elements around eating food, because we all eat food, don't we? And that sort of thing. So, so that's been an element of the, um, you know, it's been challenging at times, definitely the distance and the fact that there was one year I went to AUT once, you know, um, you know, but it was definitely a very sort of remote nature PhD, but fortunately we've got technology that does allow us to do that. But yeah, that's something that's different about the whole um, postgraduate process that's completely different from, say, your experience where you live in the Auckland area and you're sort of seeing people, meeting people, that yeah. sort of thing a bit more. But it's made the PhD probably quite a really nice thing that sort of happened here yeah. and happened in this community. And so I was very, very lucky to be able to do that. What was the other part of your question? Um, what I'd do again? Um, possibly... There's not a lot that I'd do differently. I've still found that whole dental health and general health and just even just learning more about it. Like most of the conversations in this country have been around dental caries as just being a local within the mouth process. But the yeah. systemic relationships to poor metabolic health um, has been really interesting to explore and how these sorts of things are all biodirectional and interrelate together. That's been something that's really good. Um, yeah. or it has been really interesting the more deeply I've gone into that um, as well as, um, you know, just looking at metabolic health and then the dental health thing and that backwards and forwards and just looking at how, you know, we've arrived at this point where, you know, there's, you know, dental health is in a silo and general health is in another silo and um, that actually it all just needs to come together a bit more for a more integrated approach. Because, Absolutely. you know, if you address one thing, you're going to benefit the other as well, too, which is yeah, really, really good. Yeah. I find that so funny when I go to conferences and there'll be, you know, an expert on metabolic health, for example, and it's, it all comes down to metabolism. It's all about how we're using fuel, you know, carbs versus fat, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Then you go to the next lecture and it's a, you know, microbiome expert. And it's all about the gut. 
you know, health yeah. resides in the gut, all this kind of stuff. And then you go to the next one, it might be maybe it's a dental health one where, you know, dental yeah. health has these, all these effects on health and blah, blah, blah. And then, and then you, you go to the ultra processed food one and they say it's all marketing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and you step out of that and think, well, it, it's all of those things because they all yeah. interrelate. Yeah. 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 And so you're obviously, um, we'll post links to your, is your thesis up online yet in the repository? Not yet. No, I think it's still being ticked off. When, off. when that comes out, yeah. we'll, I'll we'll let you know. Up, uh, and yeah. we'll, we'll add links to any papers that have been published as well. But outside of those resources, are there any go-to resources for, for this particular field that, that you use or that you'd recommend for the listeners? Um, there's some really great Twitter accounts. Oh, yeah. that I follow um, for some of the listeners um, and the ultra process, you know, there's, it's been really great. I mean, you know, Twitter and other social media platforms that do have their issues, but it's been, I found a really good way in which to connect with people. And you, you probably know, haven't been targeted like, by trolls yet. <laughs> oh, there's, there's been a couple. <laughs> yeah. And I think they've been some of the same ones that um, you, you've um, had something to do with. I remember seeing a Facebook post and you sort of thought, Oh, that took a while for him to get onto you, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was sort of—I I felt like I was a member of a very special club. But um, yeah, there's um, yeah, there's a, um, there's some academics working in the field, but there's not a lot of people that are looking at dental and general metabolic health as a combination. But that's that's a work on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, two two final questions. Okay. What's your favorite non-health book and why? Favorite non-health book? Ooh. Um, I think the, um, oh, there's so many. This is not a quick question, Cliff. <laughs> It, it, it usually stumps yeah. people, so I might have to give a, a heads up um, there's in the future. Some, there's some works of fiction that, um, yeah. I mainly ask this Favorite question so that I can get reading book. material as well, because I read about a novel a week, so I'm always looking for new novels to read. Yeah, I sort of go through phases of what sort of types of novels that I read. Like after something big and heavy in my life, I read some absolutely terrible things. Um, <laughs> and then... And then once I'm sort of through that and sort of going, okay, enough trash. Um, I think there was a book by Malcolm Gladwell, and I think that was really interesting about insofar as, um, you know, you're never too little to make a difference and don't think you're too small to, you know, there were some messages around, you know, what do you do to actually move things along a bit more? Yeah. Um, His writing is fantastic, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. He's the sort yeah. of guy you read and think, why do I bother? Yeah. <laughs> really I mean, nice. the, the why, I was thinking about a non-health book because I've been reading a lot of health books lately, like The Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, I think yep. is Great incredible. Book. But that's a health book. Um, and that's okay. You've had your head very yeah. much in health the last couple of years, so I can give yeah. you a pass on that one. Yeah. I always found, you know, some of those series of novels, like Stig Larson's novels, I, I just love them. Fantastic, um, yeah. And movies like the, oh, you know, books like The Book Thief, for instance, um, are really impressive as well, too. And, uh, yeah, yeah. But, um, 
you know, there's been, yeah, as far as non-health books, I think I, I haven't read a lot that hasn't been health-related, just because it's interesting, and that's sort of what I find myself drawn to reading. Yeah. And I think that's part of the process of the PhD, is you actually realise how much you don't know. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, When you get the to the end of it, and I think that's sort of... I mean, I'm not quite sure I would have thought why I would have thought any differently, but then I think it actually increases your appetite to actually read more around all elements of health. Yeah. yeah. Like the book I've been reading just lately, like got into it last night, is the Monique Fiso book, Hirkai, which is this book about modern Maori cuisine. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. She's an and amazing chef, right? She's an amazing chef. Yeah, started the Hirkai startup. Yeah, that's what I was... Yeah. Just trying to think, what I was reading last night, um, which is kind of tangentially related to health, but um, it's actually a recipe book, but it combines her own personal history and her reckoning with, you know, how she felt about her own cultural heritage. Yeah. Um, which you sort of think, actually, it's a privilege to be able to read this and what she's put down in this. And she's still super young herself. And you sort of think, she's, this is someone who's just going to go incredible places as, yeah. you know, she explores more and more around all that. And I find those sorts of things really interesting. Um, lately, it was a book that I got for my daughter, and it was called We Can Make a Life, and it's by an author called Chessie Henry. And it discusses family and the way, and, you know, earthquakes in, the, in Christchurch and in Kaikoura, which affected her family quite a bit. That's been a book I've read recently that was a non-health book, but I put it down and went, wow. And yeah. I think... That's really fun because you realise how much young talent there is in this country. Absolutely. In all these fields. Yeah. And that's what, you know, one of my, um, Bella's uh, stepfather, actually, one of our, well, and has become a good buddy of mine, uh, Mike Hutchison. He's an adjunct professor at AUT for creativity and entrepreneurship. He, um, you know, talks about that so, so often is that we have less investment in, in business and creativity now than we've ever had because yeah. most investment goes into property and it used to be about 50 50 and now it's about yeah. 90 10 business versus sorry property versus yeah. business and so you know the whole mandate is to, to really try and encourage young people to to express their creativity to, to be passionate to be purposeful mm. to, to go into these passion areas and then you know we, we can all benefit from that oh absolutely yeah all right so final question and it's, it's got to be one thing and something that people can actually do. What's the one thing, if you had to choose out of all the various things people can do to help people live a healthy, happy life, what could they do on a day-to-day -day basis? Go outside. Great answer. <laughs> Just get outside. We, we, especially here, we live in a really lovely country, but actually getting outside is, even if you're by yourself or... Um, even better if you can meet a friend. But there's plenty to be said for meeting friends outside, but also having that time to yourself outside. And, you know, if you get to walk, in, walk amongst trees, and that's the thing when you're outside. And I was doing some interesting reading around that, actually being immersed in forest. Oh, yeah. um, but just walking and going outside and in whatever form that takes, whether you're going outside and just... Um, you, always, you don't usually feel worse afterwards, whether you're actually smashing into the garden or going for a walk with friends or going for a run or going swimming or going hiking in the hills or skiing. You never feel worse after that, but just yeah. getting outside every day. Yeah. 
I, I um, agree 100%. For some time, I think that's possibly the um, number one ingredient for being ha- happy, healthy, performing, thriving. Yeah, definitely. I, rem- I remember Danny Lennon on his Sigma Nutrition podcast asked me the same question. And I think any time previous, I would have said meditate. You know, I've been a yeah. meditator for 30 plus years, well, longer, 30 eight years, I guess. Right. Okay. Um, and I, I think there are so many benefits from mindful mindfulness. Yeah. Mindful activity. But I said, go for a walk outside because it, it really encapsulates so much more, you know, it's, it's mindful. It's got that green mm. space effect. It's movement, you know, it's breathing. Yeah. It's all these various aspects to it. So I, I, obviously there are so many things that we can do for our health and there's the, that whole health and lifestyle environment. But, you know, I agree in terms of one thing that people could focus on getting outside and going for a walk is probably a pretty good start. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting the effect that that has, has on productivity as well too. And that's something I've got to find out even during that whole writing phase of the PhD is that there's a lot to be gained by actually just putting it to the side, going Absolutely. away for a walk. And, you know, sometimes those, thoughts that you're having around what you're writing is sort of ticking over and you do actually come back to it better than you ever would have had you just sat there staring at it for more hours. Um, Yeah, and it's interesting how that has an effect on the productivity around that sort of work as well too, whereas we're quite tempted to go, I must get through this, must get through this, and I've got to have this done by such and such a time. But you can actually achieve more by just, even if you go out for half an hour away from it and then come back, Absolutely. And um, yeah, yeah. So that was much. That was a much shorter than the trying to find the non-health book. Given that I've been reading all these health books lately, and I've continued reading health books. Hey, that, I was that, trying that, to go cool through too. all my books and go, oh no, that's health. That's health. That's health. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, well, thank you, Sarah. That was a, a a really great chat, and I'm really glad we we got to finally do it. Uh, there's oh. there's a lot for people to unpack in there. And I think that'll cause people to go off and do a whole bunch of reading, which is super cool. So thank you so much uh, for joining me today. I'd love to get you back on as well. And we'll talk about a whole bunch of other things. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be actually um, asked to um, be interviewed. It's really, really nice. And it's been nice catching up and discussing all these things about walking amongst trees at the very end and books and yeah, food, because we all like eating, don't we? Well, we should, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. shouldn't forget that. It's, it's there for enjoyment as well. Absolutely, and that's one of the more important things around the whole eating, isn't it? We've all gathered together and sat around and eaten to celebrate or commiserate, you know, since the beginning of time, really, haven't we? So, yeah. Exactly. Well, that's yeah. a great note to end on. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, well, thank you. It's been nice chatting. Awesome. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to the Carb Appropriate Podcast. To sign up for member-only benefits, go to cliffharvey.com. Or to learn about studying to become a nutrition coach, health coach, or clinical or sports nutritionist, go to holisticperformance.institute.